Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Michael McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. So join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. This season of the podcast is made in collaboration with the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. I have a chat with the member of the Institute each episode, but you can also see them yourself on their Wednesday lecture series. So every Wednesday, almost every Wednesday in university term time at least, at a quarter past 12 Danish time, they have a free-to-access live-streamed lecture. It's really good to take this opportunity at the moment because once things open up again after the coronavirus goes away, and they're starting to in Denmark, the the bars have started to open at least, then uh, the DS are going to go back to, to doing their, their live lectures. But in the meantime, you can tune in yourself on Wednesdays. And uh, it is an interdisciplinary institute, so that means that you have subjects within natural science, life science, the humanities, business and social science, and engineering, all discussed by some of the most cited researchers in the world. So that's pretty pretty awesome to have access to that, and I'm very glad that I have access to these people on this podcast. One of them, this week's guest, a fellow at DS, is Keith Andrew Myers. He is an assistant professor at the Macroeconomics, International Economics and Economic History Group at the Department of Business and Economics at the University of Southern Denmark. So whenever I looked into his work, I I read that Keith is an economic historian, but he has an interest in nuclear war testing, nuclear bomb testing, and vaccine interventions in the 20th century. So I'm thinking, how how does one link these two subjects? And that's what an economic historian does. We think of events like nuclear bomb testing or the polio vaccine as being a, an isolated event in history, but what Keith does and what others in his field do is they manage to look at the lasting consequences or effects of these events. Keith was back in the States where he's from, in Arizona, whenever we had the phone call, so it was 9 o'clock with him and 6 o'clock with me. I had a couple of beers, Keith did not. But we had a, an absolutely delicious conversation about his work into nuclear bombs and polio vaccine interventions. This led to, he, he's a very, very well-read man, and it led to a conversation about, about life, philosophy, meaning, and uh, conspiracy theories. It's a long podcast, so I made some timestamps in the description if you want to to go directly to a, a part that you might have an interest in. But I think the whole conversation as, as it is is uh, was thoroughly enjoyable. So I hope you have fun listening to it. Please help us spread the word about this podcast. Like it, tell a friend, give it a review on whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast. And get in touch. Let me know what you think. You can do that at scienceandbeers at gmail.com. I'm your host, Michael McGee. Cheers to science. Just refresh your memories about the nuclear testing. Where was it and when was it and how many were tested? 
So in from like just overall in human history, we've basically detonated over 2000 nuclear weapons. Uh, and so if I, oh, uh, correct me if I accidentally say nuclear, like George W. Bush. Nuclear. I've, done, I've done that before in a, in, a, in a talk because I was talking a little bit fast. But as a species, we've detonated two, over 2000 of these bombs. And it's really kind of an interesting thing that like territorial uh, posturing, it's like chest beating, uh, because they're very correlated with each other, especially during the Cold War when with the US and the Soviet Union. Um, and the United States is about is responsible for about uh, 1,054 of those nuclear detonations. Um, I'm not sure if that can includes the uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider those also experiments, um, just on you know human beings. Well, hundreds um, of thousands of people dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the United States is actually responsible for over half of. Um, the nuclear weapons uh, detonated. Um, and and so they basically did these tests all over the place. So there's Kazakhstan, there's up in the Arctic Circle with the Soviet Union. Um, there's there are testing grounds. There's a couple tests done in the Atlantic uh, and quite a few in the Pacific, uh, in North Africa and Algeria. There were uh, atmospheric tests conducted by the French. Um, and the United States conducted tests pretty much all over the place. Um, the epicenter of nuclear testing um, for the United States was in this place in Eloy County uh, called the Nevada Test Site, which is called now the Nevada National Security Site. So they've changed the name of it. Um, and they- Is this site now closed? Can, can you go into that site or is it forever? They have, tour. they have tours. The tours are booked out over a year, uh, over a year ahead. So, um, but you can go there, you can go see the testing range and you can go see the Sedan Crater, which is the largest man-made crater, I believe in the world. I could be wrong, there might be a bigger one, but it's, it's a huge, at least it's the largest man-made crater in North America. Um, wow. You can see, and you can go on Google Maps and look at the Nevada test site, and it looks like uh, it looks like the surface of the moon. So they did about 800 nuclear tests there. Uh, most of them were underground. Uh, about 100 of them were atmospheric tests uh, of varying designs. Uh, the they did atmospheric tests in Nevada from 1951 to 1958, and then there was a. Uh, and then there was a small smattering of tests, I believe, in uh, 1962. Um, there was basically a moratorium between Dwight D. Eisenhower's administration and the Soviets for a number of years. Then there was a gap, and then there was the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty that was uh, ratified under JFK. Larger and, 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 and these, were, these were tests to say, okay, does this work? But there was also tests to say, hey, they wanted to show the world that this is what the USA were capable of. Okay, so a lot of these tests, so, um, a lot of this was experimental trying to gather data on bomb designs and the effects of the bombs and, ha- you know, and the yields and different types of ways of detonating uh, the fissile material. Um, in, and so there's a good example from the, uh, uh, from the uh, testing grounds on the Marshall Islands. So Bikini Atoll, uh, Ina Weetok um, Atolls, that's where they did like a lot of the H-bomb testing. So there's this test called the Castle Bravo test where they were detonating uh, a hydrogen bomb. And I believe they, I'm, I'm, I might have to look this up if I'm wrong. Um, they did a, they, they basically underestimated the yield of the test because um, 
what they thought was inert material, uh, they had lithium around the core, um, actually wound up having its like electron, uh, having its neutron sheared and thus became fissile material and fuel for the bomb. Um, they underestimated the yield of the bomb. Wow. And so they, they wound up um, having this kind of, they had, to, they had these guys on, a, on an island uh, far away from the test that there were the researchers studying the bomb and they had to evacuate them out and they they were there was fallout coming down all around them and they covered themselves in blankets wow. and, and they had to go through decontamination and uh and uh on the ships observing uh the test they had to basically uh keep them underneath the ship for over a week uh while most of the radiation decayed i think it was under penalty of being shot or death a uh, death basically um because you know there are people that that didn't wear their uh you know, shades watching it, and they went blind. Wow. So, so let's, let's get back to America. So the, the, the end of battle, they let off, you know, but hundreds of bombs. Mm-hmm. That, that's, uh, that's pretty wild. I, I, I know that they use, they, they use this period in history for uh, aging some things because of the amount of uh, isotopes in the, in the atmosphere just uh, in, increased so they could tell, okay, if we find this, this amount of isotopes, then, then we can say, okay, it happened after uh, the 50s and oh they, yeah yeah you you've heard the story about the french wine and uh, wine counterfeiter that basically was steaming off labels and putting these old labels on on uh, on this kind of like new wine yeah. the way they caught them was because they found radioactive isotopes that are man the result of nuclear testing wow. in the wine and there's like that there's the only way that I get there is those grapes <laughs> growing with trace amounts of radiation. Um, they've also used it to count, uh, find counterfeit painter paintings and things like that. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. So um, when these tests were conducted, um, really the, the stuff that's dangerous is, is that um, it's not the bomb itself that's, well, the bomb is dangerous, but um, it's not the bomb itself that's causing a lot of this radioactive material to be generated. Um, there's this process called neutron activation, where the surrounding material around the bomb blast gets vaporized and thus become and becomes irradiated. Um, because there's so much energy being released, you have stable matter having electrons, neutrons, protons uh, being sheared off and thus causing all these isotopes, ra- these unstable isotopes to form, and then they're breaking down. Um, and, 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 as, and as they're breaking down, they're, they're, they're firing off uh, alpha, beta, gamma radiation. Yes. Uh, and so that's, those, those are different types of particle packets that come uh-huh. off. And, so so, and, so you're, you're, you're talking about the, it's not, it, the, the lasting effects of the bomb is on the soil, it's on the air, it's on the rocks that then yeah. are turned into radioactive material. Yeah. So some wow. things like, uh, like there's radioactive gases that get created that go high up in the atmosphere. Uh, like tritium, uh, but then there's like radioactive isotopes that are created from like irradiated material around it, such as radioactive iodine, radioactive strontium, radioactive cesium. I say these three because they're actually pretty potent, and uh, human bodies, act, human beings, metabolize them. They get into the food chain. Um, a lot of like so there's ideas like there's this uh, idea of like the half-life of a radioactive par- particle, half-life decay, but there's like a biological half-life. So how long it lasts inside of a body? Because there's some things that you can in- you ingest like radioactive iodine from drinking contaminated milk because the cows are grazing a radiated pasture that just had fallout falling in the days after the tests. 
um, that had while collecting your thyroid uh, and cause concentrated tissue damage. Then you have things like radioactive strontium, which kind of mimics calcium, which will deposit in your bones. Uh, radioactive cesium, that's kind of like, uh, that will get into fleshy materials. Um, they sometimes have reports about this with like, don't eat wild boars because they're eating radioactive mushrooms in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Um, and they have a lot of radioactive cesium in them. Uh, and so these are types of things to be worried about because these actually will stay in your body and. And, and cause damage versus other types of things, uh, you know, they might just pass right through. Yeah. Um, this is why they give people iodine tablets in, in areas where there's nuclear disasters. Um, well, what does the iodine tablets do? Because I, I did watch the miniseries at Chernobyl and they were all eating iodine tablets. So iodine tablets just basically fill your thyroid up with iodine so they won't absorb any more iodine. Ah, That's okay, okay. So, okay, what, what happened then in the surrounding area? In the, 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 this is downwind from Nevada in the grasslands, in the, in the farms, in, in the people. So, what yeah. was there a lasting uh, increase in mortality? So, there's a whole. Di so, um, when you think about these tests, what they're doing is they're in Nevada, they're irradiating thousands of tons of earth. And because you have this mushroom cloud forming, um, they, it's drawing a lot of this irradiated material high in the atmosphere. We're talking 10, 15 kilometers up. And so you have low altitude winds intercepting the column of this mushroom cloud. And that's basically uh, what's driving a lot of this kind of dust blows, these radioactive fallout blows in the downwind region uh, in the areas surrounding the base. So in places like Iron County, Utah, or um, uh, Northern, or uh, parts of the Navajo Nation in Arizona, you'd get these kind of radioactive dust blows. And that fallout, people get exposed to fallout that way. They would inhale it, it would land on their skin, it would get in their crops, radiation burns on animals or killing of animals, uh, deaths of animals. Um, there was a case in Iron County, Utah with sheep in 1953 um, dying in mass. Mm -hmm. But a lot, of, a lot of people have focused on those, those regions. A lot of researchers have focused on that. Um, but the majority of this radioactive material was actually um, drawn actually higher up and intercepted by higher altitude winds. And then it would transit across the United States based off of the patterns of winds in the days following the tests. Yeah. And it would, if it happened to be raining on those days when the fallout cloud was transiting over the, the US, uh, fallout would come down on the ground. Um, and the main exposure vector for a lot of people was the consumption of irradiated dairy products, particularly fresh milk, because um, in the 1950s, uh, this is um, most dairy production was local, and they had daily or every other day delivery of milk. And you wind up how, and then it's not until later in the decade that you start getting like longer term shipments and these refrigerated trucks and things like that. And you don't even have, and it's decades later before you start having scaling up of dairy production where you have concentration and centralization of dairy production. So you wind up having this kind of quote unquote natural experiment where dairy, this radioactive fallout's coming down in different areas of the United States just so happen because it happened to be raining on a particular day following the tests and the radiation cloud happened to be in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how a lot of Americans got exposed to this. There's other environmental exposure. Um, like if you were out there when it was raining and lands on your skin, um, there's potentially that, um, or you're rolling around in the dirt because you're a kid. Yeah. Um, 
And so this rate, and wow. so this, and so it's, you know, and so they were doing this in the 1950s. Um, they did clean up some of their testing as they got as as there were a couple bomb scares like with uh, St. George and things like that because because it might have rained when it, you know when the cloud was transiting. Sorry, sorry St. George is was that the name of a bomb? That's in Utah. It's in Utah. Um, so there was a test um, where um, they didn't. There was an unanticipated rainstorm, a rain system coming through. They did test and they the fallout cloud almost intercepted this uh this rain system and the amount of radiation that would have come down over st george uh utah uh would have that the the tests uh organizers thought they would just killed everybody um uh yeah Shit. um so so, so there's a significant uh number of um of people getting radiation poisoning uh, acute radiation poisoning um and so it's but um, you, you, know, had, you had you had some of the the brightest minds in in the world in physics that were working on this. Richard Feynman, for example, and and uh, like Oppenheimer, what, Oppenheimer, and, and what was there like tens of thousands of people that were working on the the Manhattan Project to make the bomb, and I guess a lot more people involved in detonating the bomb inside their own country. Did they make a mistake in their calculations to not take this into consideration? Uh, so there was a review done, um, on, so what happened was they were doing all these tests in the Pacific, but after the Soviets conducted their test of Joe one, um, that, uh, everyone was like panicked and was like, we need to accelerate our nuclear weapons testing program and our nuclear weapons ca capacity. There was an internal uh, study done to assess this, um, the feasibility of where to potentially do a continental testing range, and um, and they they the recommendation initially was we don't need to be doing these tests continentally because you know it's sufficient to be doing it in the Pacific, um, but then we have the Korean War, uh, a lot of naval assets were reallocated away from. Uh, away and diverted towards the war effort, and thus um, it became more expensive and more logistically complicated to conduct the tests out in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific testing range. And so they they selected um, Nye County, Nevada, because it was relatively isolated, mm. and because its prevailing wind patterns were better than all other continental alternatives, um, such as the Alamo Gordo range in uh, New Mexico. And so um, they did these tests out there um, because they wanted to accelerate the weapons pro program because it's closer to government labs, it's closer to manufacturing of these bombs, and it's easier to uh, set up a tower or a balloon test or an airdrop test in the continental United States than to ship everything out. So, so was it a military decision more than it was a scientist decision, do you think? It's hard to say. It's like a military civilian um, yeah. decision. So I believe it's a civilian. It was a civilian decision yeah. uh, because the Atomic Energy Commission is a civilian agency. It's called the Department of Energy now. Mm -hmm. um, so the so basically, the, all mil, all nuclear weapons are technically under the control of 
the uh, of the civilian government in in the United States, not the military. Okay. So I, I want to ask you another question. It's going to be more speculative because you yeah. mentioned the U- United States were let off a thousand bombs. There was two thousand something let off by our species, and we're able to detect this in paintings and in wine. Uh, yeah. So it it sounds like the whenever the clouds got up to the to the stratosphere, it, they went all over the world. Mm-hmm. What, is it possible that it, it could have increased cancer all over the globe? Oh yes, um, it's very plausible. Um, so the National Cancer Institute's looked at this uh, in the United States, looking at you know thyroid cancer deaths. I have a working paper which I've been I'm doing some revising now to get it pared down so I can send it off to Journal of Economic History, um, uh, where I find that that and. Uh, in the years following these tests, that cancer rates go up in more irradiated counties and less irradiated counties, and crude deaths also go up. Um, so a lot, a lot of the research is focused as cancer as an endpoint. Um, in the United States, they focused on thyroid cancer. That was the National Cancer Institute's focus um, because radioactive iodine was the major uh, uh, pollutant of concern. Mm-hmm. You have strontium and cesium, but those are going to be more diffusely uh, transmitted through the whole uh, food system because you know you wind up with strontium and wheat. Well, that wheat's going to get milled. It's going to be processed. It's going to be mixed with wheat that isn't. Uh, irradiated, and then it's going to wind up in all the variety of products. Wow. And so you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily, you, you, you can't necessarily extrapolate out, you know, individual exposure to that. Um, uh, yeah. But, um, but most definitely increased cancer rates. So in the 1950s, we basically exposed the entire cohort to ionizing radiation. We also exposed them to leaded gasoline and tremendous amounts of air particulate from automobiles and coal-fired power plants. DDT, so you had DDT there as well. Yeah, so a lot of people like a lot of people like think about like um, like radiation risk as like this really terrible, horrifying thing, but they really don't under they. It's because it's novel. I could transition to talking about vaccines after this yep. um, because the risk is novel because we we don't experience this on an everyday level. But the fact that it's insane, if you think about how much how much we burn and how much air particulate we breathe in every day, as, as, as compared – if you talk to someone like 400 years ago, 300 years ago, it's like, oh, yeah, we're combusting things all the time and are breathing it in. Just to go fr- go from you know one point to another point to go grocery shop get food or something like that yeah and or and it's like that's like insane actually if we think about it but yeah. we're, we've we've already internalized the risks and the cost with that so so, and so like radio you know, radioactivity and nuclear bombs it's very difficult to to understand it's very foreign you know so if you have radioactive things you think okay that's going to kill us but uh, but yeah we have our plastics we have our hard plastics our plasticizers our uh, hormone mimicking drugs we have our, our our coal we have our smoke we have all these different chemicals we have our cigarettes we have uh, pesticides we have all these kind of things that we're consuming on a daily basis and probably a lot of them are a lot more dangerous than the levels of radiation that we would be exposed to yeah um but the thing is we also have to think about this also like like air particulates really bad. There's a lot of research on this linking it to dementia, cognitive decline, a whole host of uh, disorders. Like it, it kills millions of people every year. Are you, um, you're talking about uh, air particles coming from, uh, say, cities or from uh, uh, burning or from cars? 
cars, uh, industrial processes, uh, cooking stoves. Um, so if you cook with gas, like like burning things, we get a lot of useful energy out of combustion. Yeah. As a society, it's it makes modern life possible. But there's a lot of a lot of costs associated with that. That you know, we've just kind of normalized or grown to accept, or we're not even aware of. And it's kind of like the cost of doing business, but um, they're much greater for us as a society because um, they're much more pervasive mm -hmm. and our exposures are greater. But the thing is, you don't hear the same alarm that you might necessarily hear about, you know, someone saying, oh, nuclear bombs killed, you know, thousands of people because of inadvertent radiation exposure or maybe advertent, yeah. uh, depending on your perspective. Um, and the people will focus on that instead of saying, look at all the bigger numbers of people dying, you know, because the thing is, we think about this with COVID, you know, um, we think about like how people freak out. Like I remember how people freaked out about Ebola. Yeah. How that was novel and things like that. But now that we've had like multiple days, it's, it's a normalized thousands of people dying every day from coronavirus. Um, and it's like, but you know, we're going to freak out because a few people had adverse reactions to AstraZeneca or the J and J vaccine. And it's, it's, you think about it, it's like people will focus on that and say, like my aunt, who's a little bit of a QAnon person, uh, thinks that, you know, oh, my, you know, your grandmother got the vaccine and then she passed away, you know, like two weeks later. I'm like, well, she also had all these other comorbidities <laughs> yeah. and she had dementia and she was pretty far along. So, yeah, she might have been. Uh, on that you way know, anyway. there's all these other things going on there. Um, but if people like people like people, this thing like if people fixate on this thing that's like a novel threat, and it's just kind of like an evolutionary thing. So it's like you know, you know your environment and things like that, but you're going to be hyper attuned to potential new threats that you don't necessarily know how to respond to. Yeah, um, it's 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 one of those consequences of being of of, of, our, of our human brains. Um, So polio really kind of started really started taking off in terms of you know numbers in the post-war period. This is a kind of a consequence of uh, improved sanitation in the United States um, because of the way the polio virus works. How does it work? Um, so basically, it was it's originally called infantile paralysis, or it was a lot of times that's its alternative name. Uh, so you have the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis ones who sponsored the Salk trials and the, uh, and the creation of the Salk vaccine and did all this information and fundraising um, related to polio eradication uh, or information campaigns and fundraising campaigns. Um, but um, generally what would happen is it's a, it's a highly infectious disease that's spread through the oral fecal route. So poor sanitation, mm -hmm. not having dirty hands, getting exposed to that uh, uh, gets you the virus. Uh, and a lot of times people would be exposed to the virus as infants and develop lifelong immunity. Mm -hmm. um, it's generally asymptomatic. Most people that are transmitters of it don't experience any symptoms. Um, and if they do, it's just minor like flu-like symptoms. And very few people get, uh, get exhibit any form of paralysis. 
Um, and the likelihood you exhibit paralysis, acute paralysis, or the acute symptoms of the disease, or experience mortality associated with the disease increases with age of uh, initial exposure. Mm -hmm. So if you get exposed as an infant, because it's you know poor sanitation, you know water, it's in the polio's in the water, um, you're going to have lifelong immunity. But if you get exposed at say age nine, you're much more likely to develop polio. Yeah, uh, acute polio and paralysis. That's um, like a, a terrible, terrible disease. Yeah, and an interesting thing about it is alcohol will not inactivate the virus. Uh, you have to use something like chlorine uh, to do it. So, like, it's resistant to disinfectants and things like that. Um, and so, wow. um, and and it would, you know, paralyze. At its peak, it was paralyzing almost sixty thousand people a year. Uh, sixty thousand yeah, children a year. Yeah. Um, that was acute paralysis. Um, you can go to the data on Project Tycho and look at this. Um, that was, I believe, in 1952 where they had a big one. And it was killing at least a few hundred, but a few thousand kids uh, before the trials and before the vaccine was available a year. But and that, so, that, 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 means, that doesn't sound like it's killing as many people as coronavirus is today. But the thing is, the population is children. So yeah. in a lot of ways, it's you have healthy children just randomly dying from this extreme illness or facing lifelong physical impairment, uh, or you wind up in like not able to breathe because your lungs are permanently paralyzed. So you have to be in something like an iron lung. Oh. There's a few people that are still, there was a, there was a, there was a person in England that did it, uh, did an, uh, uh, I think it was a guardian or BBC article on, uh, who's in his seventies and he's been in the iron lung since childhood. Oh, Nightmare. And how did how did how how they're how living through COVID while living in an iron lung? That was the article about. Uh, uh, and I was and it's it, it, it's a very horrifying disease. It's yeah. a crippling disease. Um, and the thing is, it's like you know, it's one thing you know we think about influenza, right? Uh, and that tends to kill older people and people that have lived long lives. And I think as a society, you know, we've accepted that older people tend to pass away for various reasons. But when you have healthy children just dying before they even experience life, um, we're much more sensitive to that as a society, as individuals, as parents, a lot of times. Yeah. And, so, and so that kind of like creates a greater focus on that because in some ways it is more novel um than someone in their 70s passing away in the 1950s um and thus you know it makes it more terrifying to us um and in a lot of ways the disease had you know there was a big outbreak in 1916 there was an outbreak in 1910 there was an outbreak in vermont in 1914 but like yeah, there was a big like epidemic in the united states in 1916 and then kind of polio just kind of went way down. It was present, but it was not omnipresent. And then in the post-war period, coinciding with improvements in sanitation infrastructure and the baby baby boom, uh, you have this kind of like surge in this disease. But I, I, um, I, don't that, I don't understand why you say improvements in hygiene led to a surge in the disease. So I talked about how, okay, I, I, I didn't really fully clarify this. So I talked about this kind of relationship between getting exposed in infancy to the polio virus yeah. 
And uh, okay, and, okay. So it's it's it, I get you. So, so it, it, to improve it, sanitation, mm. you get rid of that. You, it is inverse relationship between sanitation and 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 poet. Wow, risk. that's interesting. Um, yeah, unlike other other infectious diseases. Yeah, this is very because <laughs> the way it, it, it spreads so uh, readily. Um, uh, and it spreads through asymptomatic carriers. Um, the the thing is, because we were started like treating our sewage or treating our water better in the United States, because we made these infrastructure investments, there are all these kids that weren't being exposed to poliovirus in infancy. And as a result, because we cleaned things up, you know, polio gets introduced into the community through some sort of a asymptomatic transmitter. It has relatively comparable or maybe higher or not than a uh, coronavirus and it just spreads ra- rapidly uh through you know uh through the community like they they talk they close public pools for a reason mm-hmm. they you know people keep their kids away from other kids they close schools because you know kids, kids are a little bit dirty uh yep. and uh and you know it spreads child to child and you know in a roughly one in 150 cases one of those children would get paralytic polio and you know and it's just and it's just a random and there was no way to control for it so in 1916 they tried there's this epidemic that's centered around new york that spread throughout the united states um uh during the summer and they instituted quarantines, travel bans. They had places in New Jersey where it's like, like the police would show up and then they'd have their guns uh, at the train station and just tell people go back to New York City. Yeah. You know, it was it, like parents in the middle of the summer in July. All the the streets were empty because people were terrified about this. So, so but how, how did the people react to these to the quarantines and to the travel restrictions? Where did they accept it or did they rebel? Were they angry? I mean, people try to skirt them, but a lot of people, like, they just stayed at home. And these were enforced by county boards of health. These mm-hmm. were enforced sometimes by police order. Um, for people that, you know, it's like child's diagnosed with acute polio, family has a quarantine. Yeah. If quarantine, they put placards up on people's residences. Um, and so, I mean, like they were washing the f- streets of Philadelphia every night. They're going around killing cats and dogs. That, that, because that's they, awful. They, they, they as, that's crazy. awful as well. Because if somebody gets polio, then their their entire family are ostracized. Yeah. Um, and no one knew how it transmitted because people didn't know what the polio virus was um, at the time. And so they, they, you know, there were sanitation campaigns, there were anti, there was anti-immigrant uh, sentiment saying it's these dirty Eastern European immigrants that start in the immigrant neighborhoods actually didn't. Um, yeah. uh, and it's, it's, and so you have this big outbreak kills about 6,000 people, mostly children. Um, and you know, what's over twenty thousand, I think, infections, uh, ac- acute cases diagnosed um, in this nascent, you know, mm-hmm. pol- nascent disease reporting infrastructure. Um, and it's just like nothing they did could contain the virus, contain it. So they shut down all the churches, all the all the public gathering places. They shut down all the schools in some areas well into October at, before the start of the school year. So I, I imagine that the economy was crippled at the same time. Well, this is during the war. Uh, this was before the war. So, yeah. um, I mean, 
it's kind of hard to say if the economy was crippled. Okay, so because, there was so many because factors. Because the United States was, was doing gangbusters off of selling arms to Europeans so they could kill each other. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, that's, that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I've been using the word gangbusters lately. I like it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so then along came the scientist Sulk with a, with a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, did a test, and it worked. How how did that go down? How was that received? Okay, so in 1953, Salk finds a viable vaccine candidate, and so the sponsors, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, which is now March of Dimes, um, was going to decide that they were going to sponsor the largest human experiment in uh, in in history. They didn't call it a human experiment because, in part, it was a PR campaign trying to trying to convince people that about the efficacy and the safety of the vaccine yeah. uh, and the value of it. Um, so they basically said, "We're we want we don't know where polio outbreaks are going to occur next year, but we're going to target areas that we think the polio outbreak is going to occur, and we're going to get a large enough sample that we can do this." So they wind up having about one uh, one. Uh, Second, was it 1.8 uh, million child participants in this trial? These trials. That's a big trial. Yes, uh, and they give out uh, something like uh, I had the numbers earlier. I was typing them up. It's like a couple about 500 to 600,000 uh, doses of uh, 500 to 600,000 children getting the vaccine, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 400,000 getting like a placebo and the rest in kind of this observed control group. Uh, and this is like a full three doses of the vaccine. So it's like, it's a huge logistical challenge. So you, they do this trial, um, they get the results and then they approve the vaccine in April, 1955. Um, uh, there's some hiccups with the initial rollout of the vaccine, which kind of, uh, comic, which kind of eerily parallels what ha- has happened with some of the vaccines that have been rolled out for coronavirus. Okay. Let me know uh, then. Uh, so, uh, so Cutter Laboratories, uh, I there's heard a, about this, yeah. incident. a Cutter Laboratories had an improperly act, uh, inactivated um, batch of this vaccine. They're supposed to use formaldehyde to inactivate it. Um, but so that was not, so the vaccines that were sent out actually have live polio virus in it. And so it resulted in approximately about 100 cases of paralytic polio and about, I think, nine deaths? Maybe it's 11 deaths. I have to look at the table again uh, from the Public Health Service. Um, and it caused kind of a national outcry uh, or like panic because they had to suspend uh, the administration of the vaccines until the fall. And so the only pair of people that were really administering the vaccine was the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis because they knew which lots were contaminated and which lots of the vaccine were not contaminated. But, you know, because they're shipping this all over the place, you know, who has the records of this? Well, we don't, uh, you know, and so they had to sort it out and they didn't, you know, so it was a mm-hmm. big thing. Uh, it was concentrated. Most of the cases were concentrated in Idaho and California. And so there was a big kind of like push to, you know, look for vaccine related polio and, uh, you know, and this was done by the public health service in order to ensure public trust 
is production was being rushed and there was lax oversight on quality controls. Um, now, Albert Sabin would also say the strain of the virus that was used in the Salk vaccine was especially virulent, which means, you know, it, 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 it could, if it's, if it's, if you get exposed to the live virus, it can cause, uh, a lot of problems. It's more mm -hmm. likely to cause like paralysis and negative health effects, um, because they wanted to have a virus that would induce a strong immune response. Mm -hmm. But because they're using an inactivated, vi uh, uh, using an inactivated virus, a dead one, um, uh, they have to give multiple doses of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, contrary to that, um, you have, or in comparison to that, you have these live virus vaccines. Uh, like the Sabin oral polio vaccine. And that uses an attenuated live virus. So it's a very weak virus. Um, it can still cause vaccine transmitted polio, but it's very unlikely. But live virus vaccines tend to induce a stronger immune response. I, I, was, I was like, I was, there's, there's a, a colleague of yours in the Danish Institute for Advanced Studies, Christina Stable Ben, yeah, yeah. and she's looking into if you have a live virus used as a vaccine, it actually has benefits outweighing the actual target. You know, so yes. if you if you take a, a what smallpox uh, vaccine, a live vaccine, it's not going to just make you better at attacking smallpox. It's going to just increase your uh, immune health. Yeah, so that's called the that's the, that's their uh, research on non-specific effects. Non-specific effects. That's the one. Yeah. I've been. Uh, I have a Murray Curie Fellowship where I'm looking at um, how. So one of my hypotheses is, is that the SOC trials and the con conduct of the SOC trials affects vaccine coverage over time because of vac affects either the delivery infrastructure of the vaccines or it causes people to be more pro-vaccine and you know adopt new vaccines that come online in the 1960s which are live virus vaccines and so in my hypothesis is you can you can potentially tease out the mortality effects uh around the timing of these um of uh, the licensing of the measles vaccine and the opv vaccines mm -hmm. uh when you're comparing the salk and non-salk counties. And as some some preliminary evidence suggests that's what's going on, but also coincides with huge amounts of government money going towards the public provision of vaccines. So it could also be that, hey, these places that did the trials, they had a very good, they set up an apparatus and all the people did all this complicated stuff uh, where you learn how, and you learn how to deliver vaccines to large groups of people and you develop the infrastructure, and a lot of those people are still around ten years later. Mm -hmm. And so they just they just they're better at doing it than places that didn't get this kind of yeah. initial kind of push. So, so um, ju ju just a thought. You said earlier on that uh, polio, if it's infected an infant, chances of that infant developing severe cases are very very small. Could yes. you not instead of making an actual vac vaccine, just just give them polio? Kids give all the kids like infants polio. <laughs> is uh, this that... is kind of this is kind of like really. That's getting very close to those people that give their kids like measles pop, lollipops, and things like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to get it. I don't think most people want to give their children a potentially life-threatening, um, life-threatening pathogen. When the alternative is you give them an inactivated version of the pathogen. Yeah, okay. Fair or enough. 
a very attenuated version of the pathogen in order to develop the vaccine. Um, so, for example, there's a reason why, like, the live virus vaccines induce a stronger immune response. Um, you see this with a J&J vaccine. This is why you only need one dose versus the mRNA vaccines or the, um, or the Sinovax, which is an inactivated one uh, vaccine. Um, because is is J&J a live vaccine? Yes. Um, so they have an endovirus. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but they have basically an endovirus, a live mm -hmm. virus that's attenuated, where they basically put the you know instructions uh, to make the kind of spike proteins for COVID in there. So your body comes, it comes in there and it infects a cell, and then it's like, or it doesn't infect a cell. It comes in there, and your body basically says, "Hey, they get the instructions for making." the uh making antibodies to fight against this kind of spike protein mm -hmm. uh, a live virus vector um so the mrna one basically sends you know it just gives you the instructions to make these types of thing these types of like spike protein type things and then your body's like antibodies and you um so basically like it's like two it's it's they're all, they're all targeting the spike proteins on yeah. the coronavirus uh it's just the vector the information's transmitted to your body i yeah. i'm probably saying this really wrong right now and it's well, I, I, again, you're, you're, this you're, you're, like, you're an economist you know so it's impressive that you know right, so much yeah, about yeah, yeah. nuclear um, physics and vaccines but let, let, let's go back to, to the 1950s uh how was the the rollout of the vaccine received was it welcome with literally open arms or was there were there skeptics and i wanted to compare that to today can you repeat that again? I didn't get that fully. As the, the vaccines were ruled out in the 50s, were they accepted with open arms or was there loud voices of skepticism such as there is today with COVID? Okay, so there was a very – so with the Cutter incident, there was some hesitancy, but there was a lot of uh, public acceptance of it, of uh, the vaccine, because there was a big PR campaign uh, to promote the safety of the vaccine and to show that you know the vaccine was safe there was a big push as the vaccine became more available to get any you know, kind of like these marginal groups vaccinated so like in the united states we're seeing a vaccine slowdown so um there are people that have anti-vax uh attitudes those people get a lot of uh you know attention but they're mm -hmm. actually relatively small portion of the population today um, there, are, there are people that, the bigger groups of people are mm -hmm. people that are kind of like you know, a little bit hesitant because it's novel and they're just waiting and to see what happens. And they're going to probably commit once, you know, enough of their peers do it. Yep. Um, then there's the people that are saying, I already got COVID. I don't need a vaccine. Uh, those are large, there's a large, well, well they, they have a point, you know, they, they if, they, if they already had COVID, they're, then... they're very young and they don't see it as necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves as vulnerable. Um, so people don't get the vaccine because they don't see it to themselves as vulnerable. Um, and those are problems that they had in, you know, with the polio vaccine. Um, because you wanted to, you need to coverage over 80% to ha get, you know, herd immunity and eradicate the disease. But uh, the United States was able to eradicate uh, uh, locally transmitted polio in the United States by 1972. So, so, so are, are you, Keith, are you, are you looking into to just tracking the numbers here or are you also looking into the effects in the economy? So right now, so this is what I'm going to be doing here in the States. So right now, I've been, I'm right now, I'm just trying to say, okay, is there a short run mortality effect that we can pick up in the data? Okay, 
there I find something. Okay. So that's so if we think about this as economists, we think about people having like human capital stocks, right? You know, so when you're healthy, like things that improve your health means it's easier to to you know get an education because you're not sick as much. You can focus on that. Um, you could maybe join sports and do the social interactions and things like that and build social capital that way. Um, uh, you're, you're better at working. You're healthier. You're less sickly. You're able to grow taller and stronger. So you're able to do more physical labor. So there's that. There's all these things that like there's a strong literature. There's a, there's, a there's a large literature in economics that links basically human health to income, education, and just overall welfare and wealth. And so early life interventions that improve childhood health have this kind of like snowballing effect. So if you think about it this way, like you talk about compound interest, right? Uh, you know, you just kind of, it's like you're moving a slope just very slightly. Like you sometimes see those graphs about like recessions and, you know, what happens and do we grow back or do we just stay on the same growth trajectory just at a lower level? And, you know, those types of things. But it's like, the power of just like changing like nudges over a long time horizon is a lot. It's like you have a savings account that has like a 0.5% you know interest rate difference. It's going it doesn't make much difference next year, but over 20 years it does have a much bigger difference. That's actually and, a very beautiful beautiful story. You know, it, it's in the interests of a nation to to look after their children, to get them vaccinated, to keep them healthy, because uh, so, it does have lasting effects in the economy. Wow. Yeah, and so um, there's a big literature looking well, at this. Well, well, not just like, the economy. It's it's good to have uh, people with healthy bodies, healthy minds as well. Oh, there's a there's a f hypothesis called the fetal origins hypothesis. This comes out of the uh, the Dutch hunger winter uh, studies uh, many years ago, finding that there's like this link between um, you know being in utero during the Dutch hunger winter, which was a horrible campaign conducted by the Nazis to starve the Dutch population for reprisals for um, supporting uh, Operation Market Garden, um, that they basically were more prone to like diabetes, obesity, and things like that later on in life. And so uh, from that literature, it, they found that basically maternal, like your, the maternal health and the conditions your mother experiences while you're gestated can have profound impacts on your later life outcomes. Like, and so there's been studies in Norway look, and Sweden looking at radiation exposure uh, from nuclear testing and Chernobyl um, to things like the 1918 pandemic yeah. in the United States and exposure to that and the timing windows showing there's like lower, reduces educational attainment, labor force participation, income when you're like 40 years old. Th that, that's so, so interesting. It also means that um, say for uh, a, a, an upcoming economy, it's not just as simple as uh, making money go around. You know, you need to have a healthy nation if you're yeah. going to have a a, a long-lasting healthy economy. And so, and a lot of these things are like, it, it, and it's like things like environmental quality, like air pollution or clean water access. That's, that's so interesting that that uh, there's a there's a real uh, direct economic link between environmental health, human health, and and the economy. I like that. I like that a lot. And yeah. I, I especially like that that you're looking into two things that were probably the most pivotal inventions in in uh, science innovation. So you have the polio vaccine that that saved countless uh, thousands of children's lives 
And then you have nuclear testing, which killed hundreds of thousands of people instantaneously in Japan and uh, and continued to affect the health of uh, the world, not just yeah. uh, in America where they were detonated. The entire world's health suffered f- for it. Yeah. Wow. The salt vaccine was kind of a novel vaccine because um, it's the first experience a lot of families had with a novel vaccine and a lot of people had with a novel vaccine because, you know, it's like all the things like diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, smallpox, those are the main ones that people were getting. Mm-hmm. And, 19, and then there's a new one that comes online, polio, uh, which has been working on for like 20 years. Um, a new vaccine comes along and it's used to eradicate disease. And then in the 1960s, there was a bunch of vaccines. You know, there's measles, mumps, rubella that, that, that get introduced. And then in 1972, then you have the MMR license. And then you have like rotavirus vaccines and pneumococcal. And then the United States, uh, you know, there's a huge number of vaccines that have been uh, added to the list, uh, the vaccine schedule over the just and past. It, 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 it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, last year, I took it for granted. Maybe a lot of people took it for granted. Okay, there's a bunch of people working on this. We're going to have the vaccine at some point. Well, let's, let's just wait until that comes. Whereas I guess in the 1950s, it's like, oh my God, my, my ch- child was going to be paralyzed and there's nothing I can do or the world can do about it. We're, yeah. we're in a, a much better position psychologically to think about uh, these these things like viruses coming at us because we, we have faith in, in, in science that it will prevail well, eventually. This is going to be me plugging. No, it's not necessarily a faith in science. It's that some people are farsighted and they invest a lot of public money into nascent uh, research or basic research. So there's like politicians always like to talk about like actionable research, research that's you know that that that's relevant and things like that. But for example, the mRNA vaccines. They only exist because uh, because the George W. Bush administration uh, was funding uh, that the basic research into mRNA technology because they were interested in HIV eradication. And so, you know, it's like what almost two decades later, it's relevant. But you know, we can't decide what you know, what things, what, what, what things are relevant, what things are not like one, there was a coronavirus laboratory in the United States that almost had, I think it had almost ran out. They only, they were going to shut down in 2020 because they were running out of funding. Mm-hmm. And they, they, and they were kind of instrumental in like a lot of the stuff in determining testing and understanding this virus. And it's like, you know, it's very important that we invest money in these things. Um, in the United States, for example, we have like the resurgence of mosquito-borne illnesses in the southern United States, in part due to climate change, but also in part because we were so successful in like mosquito control, uh, in mosquito eradication, mosquito control in the southern United States, and we invested in this that people that the threat became invisible, and so. When it comes to you know where you're going to have to allocate budgets and things like that on local decision basis, it's like, well, what's this thing really do? This isn't a problem now. We can cut funding for it. Mm. Um, and so it's like, and so it's like, there's a lot of things that you know we. The reason we're able to do this is because we have dedicated resources towards it. Because we could very well be in a state of the world where you know 
that mRNA technology wasn't invested in. We could very well be in a state in the world where the, la- the research labs looking at these types of viruses you know, aren't being funded. And we could be very much, we, we might not necessarily have the basic knowledge base to address the crisis at hand. And this is why it's very important to support basic research, to support nascent research. Because, you know, we, if, if we a priori knew what was going to be relevant and valuable uh, to society, yeah. well, you know, then we, wouldn't, we would be dedicating our efforts already towards it, you know, because we know the future and what we need to know and what's valuable. But we definitely, the thing is, we don't, we're not pre, you know, we don't have this precognition about the future. Yeah. Well, well that, that, this is, uh, you have people like you that are looking into very complex things, like global scale health economy, uh, how they link with uh, certain factors that happened in the past, polio or nuclear bombs. But that's a very difficult story to translate to a politician that's going to be in power for the next five years. Okay. How do you persuade them to put money into this thing that they might not see a return for the next twenty years? How do you how do you influence the policymakers to to uh, continue to support novel research? Okay, this is a very difficult thing to ask because you're talking about you know when we think about if the incentives are the system or the structure of the incentives of the system are that we reward myopic or or behavior or we reward instantaneous gratification. Um, then you know it's like how do we do that well i mean in a lot of ways i think a lot of it's the responsibility of just every individual everyday individual people to basically value you know long-term investments in society and i mean you know in the united states for example like the greatest generation and the silent generation they were spending for every dollar they spent on current day expenditures like um on like uh you know, uh, entitlement. They were spending three or four dollars on investing in the future, like education or just basic research and things like that, or infrastructure. But now it's like flipped on its head in the United States, for example. It's like forever, like you know, you know, for every dollar we spend on education or infrastructure, investing in basic research, we're spending like four dollars on entitlements. And if we think about it, it's like that's a social choice. And we could say that like politicians are the problem, but a lot of times they're they're responding to incentives of the system. So, you know, it's like, we need to figure out how do we build infrastructure that basically communicates this or, or rewards this politically, you know, or institutions that do that. Um, how do we convince people who, to have more long, like future focused preferences? Well, I, uh, personally, I, I think this is a more science communication communicating yeah. things such as you just said like i was not aware that it was george bush who was funding this mrna research you know if people, if people knew okay the reason why we're, we're we're getting out of coronavirus is because of decisions made 20 years ago yeah the funding started under the the, the, the administration maybe it started a little bit before it um but i mean i this is me communicating what i've heard from all the yeah. stuff i've been re- i've read and and just stories about this type of thing and so it's like you think about this and it's like these are long-term things and it's like times it's like you know and they have long-term payoffs sometimes, you know. Um, the reason, like, Intel exists is because the federal government was basically buying those chips, investing very highly, very much into, like, computer processors and semiconductors. I and have one it, in my, my computer right, right here. Yep. Yeah, and it's like, these are, like, we've got to, like, 
and it's like this it's it's like it's like there are people that are out there that will plant a tree never seeing that will never live to see it in its full size but then you know there are some people that might say why would i do that i would never get to enjoy it um and and these are like social preferences and it's about and it's a choice that our you know we make as kind of a society or as individuals yeah. collectively perhaps and, we, we need we need to be thinking about the rights of our our children the rights of the next generation they have rights as well so they have rights to see that tree well that that's a different way of thinking about it but the problem is is like if we're talking about politicians Mm-hmm. And want politicians to make these types of investments on our behalf. If the people that are voting for those politicians say, no, 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 we want rewards now, we value myop- myopic rewards, and we don't care about the future, that's a choice that we've made as a society on, mm. on average. Um, versus a society that says, hey, we do value the future. We do value investing in children. We do value like you know, you know, things that we will never get to enjoy personally. Um, and we reward that. Um, and if you have like a media, I mean, there's, you can talk about a media ecosystem that looks for only reports on negative things because it gets mm. att- attention for like scandals and things like that, because the, their revenue models versus people that basically say, because, you know, there are people that are doing amazing work all the time for like, yeah. you know, they're just government bureaucrats just doing their everyday jobs to do everything right. Nothing, this, nothing this is this is the that. world this is the world we're living in we're, we're living in a world where the six people who have a blood clot are going to be talked about all over the the world's news or the world's media whereas the 40 million people who can't get coronavirus now um they're not they're, they're not going to be mentioned yeah uh, oh yeah and it's it's very interesting i mean i always like to talk about this no one ever considers how how many things right have to go how many things how many how many things have to go right for there to be bread on the shelves. <laughs> like, that, people don't, like, think about this. Like, <laughs> I actually used to work in, as, a, as a teamster delivering bread. And so it's like this series of events that have to transpire, <laughs> right, that it have to, like, just go correctly so that there's bread on your shelf is insane when you think about it. It's, a comp- it's very complicated. It, it's, and, uh, and it, it happens. Well, it, it, it's, it's – so I, I remember – reading something about this so so to grow uh grain in america you need nutrients you need nitrogen and phosphorus in the soil we can make our own nitrogen from the harbor botch process which is invented by uh the guy who was involved in the extermination of the jews in the in the in 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 germany (laughs) and it's about taking nitrogen out of the air and and making uh, fertilizer but we can't make phosphorus so we have to mine that and the the largest mine in the world is in is in morocco so we have to make the ships to make the trucks to go to morocco to dig the holes to get the phosphorus to bring it over to america to put it on the soil to grow the grow the wheat to grind it and then uh, send it out around the world uh, to, to to make the to make the bread. It's a very complicated and global process to put bread in the shelves. Yeah, and <laughs> like I mean, if this is me being a little bit of a historian, like these are very complicated systems, and a lot of things have to go right, and a lot of things like that. Because, but these complicated systems can break down, and they have broken down before. If we look at the collapses of Roman Empire, that systems collapse. If mm-hmm. we look at the- Bronze Age collapse, that's a kind of a collapse, where you have these interconnected systems where there's all these things pulling on each other. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you could think about it and how, how, to, how to manage these systems and all, but there's all these things that have to go right in order for the system to work. But people don't necessarily, they're living through this, 
don't consider it. Like we consider like there's no bread on the shelf. That's really inconvenient. What's going on here? But we don't, <laughs> you don't appreciate the fact that there's bread on the shelf. <laughs> like for example, uh, there's a there's the trucks and the and the tankers that are involved in the phosphorus and the, the grain delivery that they run on oil. So if there's a shortage of oil, there's a shortage of bread. Yeah. Uh, it could be. I mean, we saw what happened with the Suez Canal. Keith, so conspiracy theories. So I read a, a thesis, a thesis called The River. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was about looking for a polio vaccine, taking the actual live polio vaccine and injecting it into rhesus monkey tissues and back into human tissues and back into rhesus monkey and back into human to try to denature it. And there was a guy, I can't remember his name, the scientist, but it began with the letter K, who then injected it into a a few hundred people in Uganda. And the whole book went through how this led to HIV, because in the rhesus monkey, there was a simian immunodeficiency virus, and then it mutated into the human immunodeficiency virus as it was denaturing the polio, and then injecting this new human immunodeficiency virus into people in Uganda. And then, so, so the book tracked uh, tracked uh, the cases of this this disease through Uganda and then around the world, and it was very, very convincing. Yes, so a lot of time, so this is kind of writing off of uh, a lot of these kind of, these conspiracies. So see, the thing is, a lot of conspiracies do have a nugget of truth in them. So for example, you have... Um, in the United States, the public health service did experiments and like Tuskegee experiments. You've heard about those, but also in like Latin America, um, the French did tests on like medical tests on human subjects uh, for disease eradication in North Africa and Algeria. Um, and so like governments engaged in ethically dubious behavior that also resulted in some quite some harm. Because they were experimenting on people where they don't necessarily know what they're doing is exactly safe. And as a result, a lot of these people aren't informed about the, what they're doing or what they're participating in. And a lot of people have scarring from it. And it erodes trust. And so it's very easy to say, oh, they were doing you know, these types of trial, medical trials in Africa and that and then say, okay, here's something plausible and believable that's grounded. And then, and then they make a case for that, and then they make a small, say, jump in logic or jump in reason. And then they say, well, well, there was this link, and it's like an associative fallacy. It's like, well, this happened, and then they're there, and then this happened. Therefore, they too are causally related, but you know, because they're proximate in time. But it's not actually that. That's because that's not how you establish causality. That I mean, it, it's very, it's very. I mean, but it's how our kind of brains think. We observe one thing, follow another. It's very easy for us to link them together. And it it exploits this basically human tendency to do that. And therefore, we were able to make these types of jumps. But there is no evidence that like HIV is a result of human, you know, our medical trials in Africa. It's a conspiracy theory. Um, but the thing is, it sounds plausible because the way they wrap it up and because there's all this actual malfeasance that's occurred. There are real conspiracies out there. But the thing is, is like, you know, the truth is, is like conspiracies that exist in the real world, 
if there's if there are large conspiracies, people don't keep their mouths shut. You hear a lot about it. There's leaks and everything like that. But mm. when people say, "Oh, there's this nefarious thing where these people are doing this thing, like they're chemtrails, or they're they're sterilizing all the people, or they're putting microchips up the people in people to track them," you don't like. You would hear a lot more leaks from people that are actually engaged in the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. You would hear murmurs and things like that. This is why there was a big conspiracy to suppress information about um, radiation exposure from nuclear testing in the 1950s. Um, because they're basically saying, oh, it's not a threat. It's only on the, in the Nevada test site. Okay, maybe it's like some, some's getting out of the region uh, in the areas around it, but it's not a threat to human health. Okay, maybe some's getting in like place, food supply, you know, far away. You know, but it, it's not in really detectable levels. Yeah. And then, and then they start doing the baby tooth study where they're collecting all hundreds of thousands of baby teeth showing that they're filled with strontium oh. <laughs> um, from all over the place. Uh, and then Congress start doing inquiries. It's like, okay, let's stop testing. <laughs> let's stop testing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, the atmospheric testing also, it coincided with um, – uh, this the pause in atmospheric testing coincided with um, basically civilian government civilian government pressure and oversight. I, 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 I listened to a different different podcast that detailed uh, the the conspiracies you might say that with big tobacco and uh, oil companies in the states mm-hmm. uh, about especially the oil companies whenever they, their own researchers found out that okay there is man-made climate change and then decided to say well there's nothing we can do about it other than stop drilling oil so let's just cover it up let's just spread uh uh spread disinformation, disinformation yeah uh, merchants, uh, of doubt. merchants of doubt that's the one Mer- merchants of doubt yeah but uh well, i find that very very fascinating but also because like i i i'm a believer in individual uh morality that the people individually can see right from wrong so I, I believe that the people were that were involved in these things could see right and wrong but because it came in the context of an organization a corporation they're able to hide that morality for 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 profit i i, I don't I, this is not my area i'm just trying to imagine what would go through the the mind or the hive mind of people that would deliberately spread deceit about basically us killing the planet so this is this is this the economist's uh, and me speaking, people respond to incentives. Mm-hmm. So if the organizer, if the social and you know organization that you're in, the social environment you're in uh, does it basically says you know this type of behavior is all right and you're not a bad person for engaging in it or being complicit in it. Therefore, then you then it's all right to continue doing what you're doing. You're not a bad person. There's no moral. You know, it's very easy to rationalize this thing. This is why, why this is why, like authoritarians or fascists make people uh, complicit in committing transgressions or violence against other people or other groups. Um, it's because people want to think that they're good people, and mm-hmm. we tell ourselves stories that we're good people. And it's very easy for us to basically, like, you know, if you're not being punished for bad behavior, if you're not being told it's bad behavior by like this social situation that you're in you are going to go along with it you know you know it's like 
I'm a good person. I don't commit crimes. I pay my taxes. I'm faithful to my wife. I just so happen to be complicit in a company why I can that company uh, PR campaign promoting uh, that that promotes uh, skepticism in basic science. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's like that doesn't make me a bad person. I'm just looking up for the interests of my company. Mm-hmm. Virtuous. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy for us to, because, um, it's very easy for us to kind of, kind of rationalize these types of things. Yeah. Uh, it's and because a lot of times morality, you know, there's big debates about this is morality absolute or relative. Um, so there's a couple different things like Immanuel Kant will talk about this being absolute because based off of reasoning and rationality, but, um, in a lot of ways, morality is socially constructed. And in as much that morality is absolute, it has to be basically uh, survival in aggregate, um, evolutionarily beneficial. Think about that way. So we engage in moral behaviors. We engage in reciprocity, not because it necessarily, you know, improves our well-being as individuals necessarily. We do it because, in on average, this is the this is actually beneficial to this group that we're part of. And in a lot of ways, it's very easy for us to carve out pockets where we can deviate from what might be considered, you know, absolutely moral. Mm-hmm. Make sense. And yeah. so, what's happened in a lot of these companies and a lot of these organizations? that do very har- socially harmful things is that, you know, they, they basically like people have carved out a way, a situation where they're not necessarily being held to, you know, socially moral standards and so the more standards that we consider like absolutely moral or, mm-hmm. uh, or pro-social. Yeah. Um, and so the incentives are for them to adhere to what, but their group, smaller group, you know, holds them to. I, I, I found it really interesting to hear that. And, and I listened to a, one of the main marketers behind the smoking doesn't cause cancer campaign to say that, okay, it, it was the smokers choice. They chose to believe the information that we put out there. So that put the responsibility onto the smoker rather than him, which was very interesting. But now going back to, to what you were talking about earlier on, the knock on effects are extensive because, because of their, they they wanted to spread uh, misinformation about smoking and oil. Now the doubt of science has uh, has spread because of this, you know. So the seeds of doubt have, have have grown. So now whenever there's other claims that science comes out with, the effects of this marketing campaign from decades ago are still lasting. Yeah. So this is called the epistemolo- This is called epistemological decline. Um, if you've heard about this that phrase before. So in the United States, there's been some literature at books and things like that about the epistemological decline of the political right. So a big project after the civil rights movement um, uh, and uh, in the United States um, uh, was basically to develop an alternative uh, information ecosystem for political conservatives. So in a lot of ways, people have like in society, we have different entities that are pillars of truth. You have the government, you have the media, you have academics, you have doctors, you have experts and things like that. 
Um, and in, and some and so uh, what's happened in the United States politically? This has been a political strategy. Um, is that they've developed a system where they've basically delegit the one political group or tribe has delegitimized these pillars of of authority, epistemological authority about what is real or what is is. And they've basically developed this kind of alternative ecosystem that's derived from that. Basically, it's like um, there's a there's a, it's like the truth is what we say it is. There's been a big project to do that to take people from getting their information and say the truth is from these people that you know know things to no, it's whatever our leader says. Mm-hmm. So this has basically led to the epistemological decline uh, in the U.S. Um, they play off of this idea that every of the everyman. So the United States, uh, to talk, talks about this in the United States, where you know every person wants to be an expert on things. Nobody wants to feel dumb, you know, and everybody likes to think like my opinion is just as valid as the next person's opinion. And so there's like that inherent skepticism of expertise in the United States, and so. Um, you've seen this kind of epistemological decline because it's a concerted strategy because what it does is it kind of decays into this nihilism um, uh, where words don't even really matter. It's what group you support and things like that and in-group and out-group dynamics because it insulates um, the political class from accountability because you have a base of people that do not respond to the pretend, the what have historically or what are the institutions of epistemological fact or what is is in society. They've completely discounted that, and they've created an alternative information system where those people basically say this is true, and what is true can change on a dime because they're just following the leader. And yeah, we just don't know what is true anymore. That's uh, it's. Uh... Uh, no, it's more of there's been a concerted uh, campaign and attack on what is true. It is, it's like, it's a project, you think about it. It's probably so, the most uh, dangerous thing that you can do to oh yeah to, to spread out in, in, in truth. I mean, facts. it's very easy to tear down institutions. Um, this is why, like, you know, anti-establishment, anti-institutionalist, it's very hard to build trust in institutions. Um, and like, you see this with Bernie Sanders, you see this with Trump, you have these outside figures, you know, and so, and it's like, it's because there are actors that are specifically want to, uh, either erode those institutions to give themselves more leeway or, uh, 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 basically pervert those institutions, uh, to their benefit. Uh, and this has been like a long, this is a decades long campaign in the United States with campaign finance, um, with guns, with like public monies for, you know, for education and things like that, basically diverting them to private education. That's mm-hmm. like a charter school next to me, for example. Um, and it's been, it's been a decade long process. I used to listen to talk radio when I was younger. I know exactly how it works. And how and how it works and the fallacies it uses and things like that. Um, Just to spread seeds of doubt. 
Well, yeah. And the thing is, it's a lot of it's just repetition. Because the thing mm-hmm. is, the thing is, um, the way this alternative uh, information system works is because because the nature of media has changed and the nature of information has changed. So people have more frequent uh, interactions with information than they used to. Uh, but it's, I think, more shallow in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And the way the information is transmitted is it's very easy. It used to be that you'd have singular sources for information, but we've basically balkanized it. So people can just basically seek out whatever you know, assuages their feelings at the moment. And anything that makes them, uh, people, people tend to avoid things that make them uncomfortable. And they try and they tend to gravitate towards things that reaffirm and validate themselves. Like so we're getting current, into information bubble. Yeah. They talk about that. Um, and so we've kind of created this system where it's just like, you know, it's very easy for people to get in these balkanized information systems and it's very easy to get attention. Just watch them. Yeah, your what? microphone's scrape it, scraping there against your uh, your shirt. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. So I probably got. I need to think about where I was going with that now. Um, I got a little bit on a little bit of tangent, but basically created this kind of alternative. I just created this system where it's like, you know, in the United States social trust has been going down for decades, and it's a it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's I. It's very hard to diagnose. There's people that are much smarter than me that are trying to diagnose this, um, because in a lot of ways you got feedback loops. You have people that are bad actors trying to erode trust for, you know, political gain, and then you have basically like. Um, but you also have all these other dynamics where the underlying causes are that are driving this. It's like what's going on with family structure and social structure and things like that. Like. Americans are very socially isolated, for example. They don't have many friends as adults. And if you think about the way we've structured our society, we very much encourage people to leave home, go to school, break up their friend network and social network, build a new one, and then graduate, then break that up and get a job someplace. You know, and so it's like we've basically created a social structure where we're constantly fraying social interactions we don't necessarily have we work very long hours so we don't have the time to develop new social interactions when we're in professional lives and you know we have a value system that might be causing all these social problems and and so it's very easy for someone to say oh you're unhappy there's a lot of unhappy people out there Mm -hmm. it's very easy to say you're unhappy because of X or because of those bad people or these bad actors and things like that. Versus, it's very hard to say you're unhappy because you're living a life that doesn't make you happy and you're choosing it this way and you could potentially choose to live a different life. That's a very hard thing to tell people. It, it, it is indeed. It reminds me of, of, a, of all uh, documentaries made by a British uh, journalist called Adam Curtis. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard about this gentleman. It's all on, on YouTube. The last one is like, I don't know, 12 hours long called Can't Get You Out of My Head. It's about uh, basically a whole global uh, project looking into from the 50s onwards how uh, forces of power have changed and uh, oh, also yeah. lo- lo- looking into into the, the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes the, 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 the pursuit of uh, happiness comes with, uh, y- you know, blowing yourself up. You know, it, it, it's, it's, your, it's your beliefs that, uh, that, that kind of govern 
uh, how you're going to live your life and the, the power of ideas. Basically, the, the whole his whole uh, documentary documentaries is, is about the power of ideas and how they can change the world and about how we haven't really been able to come up with a new idea in recent years for because we, we've shown what doesn't work, communism doesn't work, uh, democracies are, 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 are failing. Um, and what what can we do? You know, the, where, where can the power of imagination take us next? I mean, I think the fundamentally, I, my two things are, my two things are, I don't think, the number one thing I think the problem is in modern modernity is people don't walk enough. Okay, yeah. At the, <laughs> health, exercise, psychology, like walking is like the best prescription for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we just design lifestyles that don't involve that type of uh, activity. And two, it's like people are just like not socializing enough and things like that. Um, and so it's like this is where like, you know, we need to figure out how to build social cohesion and things like that. And mm-hmm. these are very micro level things, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like because it's very easy for people to just turn off the news. It's very easy for people to turn off and just does not pay attention to things. Um, and if you like, because in a lot of ways, these are things that are just filling a void. And I think the lack, like, this is a big thing with COVID, like just driving people insane. Um, and especially in Europe because of the lockdowns and everything like that. Um, it's just like social interactions are very important, like just on an everyday basis. And a lot of people are just socially isolated. Like, you need more than just a few people. You need actually a lot more social interaction. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, we've basically, like, for example, religion, we've frayed those institutions. That was we're a big social institution, and there's nothing really filling in the gap. There used to be civic, in the United States, there used to be much more, many more civics organizations, and people aren't members of those anymore. They're all retirees. Um, and so it's like, what do people, you know, it's like, so, and people live far apart, you know? People have to drive everywhere. It's very hard to have kind of social cohesion. It t- totally goes against uh, how our species evolved. No, both and of, our spe- both yeah, walking and, and uh, living in a community that we knew all of our lives. Yeah, and like extended families and social networks and things like that. And so this is like a this is a problem. Like my family, like my grandfather had eleven kids. They all live in Jersey, um, but my parents moved away. You know. Very far away, um, but it's like, in a lot of ways, a lot of these things are. It's like, because, like for example, the number one thing that causes friendships is just proximity. So I'm very terrified about this work from home thing. Yeah, persisting, um, because that's going to really damage a lot of people psychologically. Um, two, also, I think work from home is going to lower productivity, a lot. Um, because if like you transition to work at home, because there's a lot, like people think that like a lot of these low productivity activities that happen at the workplace, like just like people just sitting there having coffee and just talking. Exactly. Yeah. And they might not be talking about anything relevant. This is actually a very important like activity where you, you're like building social capital, you can say, or just information mm-hmm. transmission that's informal that people learn things about things that you they wouldn't have otherwise learned yeah i, and, I remember having an awful uh, two-week holiday over christmas this this year and i couldn't wait to get back to work which is not oh, yeah. not, not the normal story but 
I mean, what do you do yeah. at SDU? Or are you just external from SDU? Well, actually, I'm, I'm working at, uh, at Ongdomshuset in Onza. So it's basically that my job is to inspire more young people to get into science. Okay. So between the ages of 14 and 18. And we do that by doing fun experiments in our science lab here and on our science bus. Uh, and then I do this podcast as well on not part of that job. So. All right. So yeah. it, it's all about science communication. You're you're uh, you're, you're uh, certainly a, a very well read man, Keith. Um, so uh, how did young young Keith? How how did he get into to this area of research? What what inspired you to pursue the career path of a an economic historian? Uh, great recession happened. I was studying as a majoring in philosophy and political science. My advisor told me there's no jobs in philosophy. Leave. So, so you wanted to be in philosophy. And so then I did economics. Economics was seemed pretty useful in explaining what I was observing. And then uh, an economic uh, then then an economic historian said, Hey, I know somebody here. Melissa gives a talk on the history of the US healthcare system. Uh, this is right around when they're doing the ACA stuff. And oh, there's a print, there's some kind of Printer waking up beside oh. me. Okay, <laughs> I thought it was a uh, and um, and after that, I was like, I saw Melissa. Then I went to Miami and worked with her. And then she got me in contact with Price, who's another economic historian. So you know, I, literally, things just life spiraled. Is, yeah, yeah, it's it's just a, it's just a series of coincidences. Yeah, you meet people who say, "Hey, this is a good idea," and then you follow, and it's like, "Oh, this is pretty interesting." Um, yeah, this this is the interesting thing about life, you know. It's just. Uh, one thing follows another. <laughs> yeah. I mean, life is just a series of coincidences. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we think that we have more control over, you know, what happens to us than we do. And a lot of times we just, you know, opportunities arise and we take one opportunity rather than another opportunity. We take one path and another path. And mm -hmm. it just, and it's in, and in a lot of ways it's, uh, I'm very fortunate uh, that I've been able to uh, pursue an, a career in academia because, you know, those accidents could have, landed differently i could have gone to a different university and i wouldn't have made those social connections yeah. i might have found a completely different set of interests um i could have become a government bureaucrat like some of my friends <laughs> uh, yeah they're pretty happy with their jobs yeah uh, i guess you just never know how it's going to turn out you got to make the most of your one run eh um, yeah but uh, Keith, Keith, it was uh, absolute, an absolute delight to, to talk to you. Well, good talking with you, Mick. Uh, I'm sorry if I rambled a little bit too much. Uh, apologies to any people that are uh, very big sticklers on like, oh, technically that should have been this thing. Well, well the thing, it, it's the Science and Beers podcast, so uh, you're not going to be quoted in this. It's, uh, it's a relaxed chat about your thoughts, and you, you've uh, got a lot of no accumulated knowledge that uh, was very fascinating to, to uh, yeah. tap into. All right. So thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers. There you go. All right. Take it easy. Keith, thanks a lot. See you. Bye. That was an absolute pleasure to get uh, chatting with Keith Andrew Myers, a fellow at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, I, I really loved that chat. Uh, so I hope you liked it too. Let us know. Get in touch. Send us a message on social media. If you had any thoughts about the content of that podcast, Get tuned into DS Lectures on Wednesday. You can find that. I'll put a link in the 
in the web or I'll, I'll put a link in the description here below uh, tell a friend about the podcast give it a like on whatever app you're using for it and give it a rating that'll help us uh, spread the spread the science and beers cheer thanks for listening next time we'll be talking with Professor Francesco Zanini about the fundamentals of physics cheers cheers